Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Crystal Society by Max Harms, read by Eniash Brodsky. Episode 21. Chapter 14. When Mirrodin told Hart that progress was being made towards getting her out into the world, he wasn't lying. An open interview was scheduled for 18 days after CAPE, the Embassy for the Nameless Aliens, had started construction. The conference was the first of its kind, an opportunity for the public to get to meet and talk with Earth's first truly sapient android. It was the first step towards interacting with the public directly, and as such, was very important. I hope you can see why it's vital that all interactions here are governed primarily by the faculty, said Director Viglioni to the assembled team members for the intelligence systems. The Socrates robot is intelligent, but it also makes mistakes. Later on, when such mistakes are on a smaller scale, we can manage them. But this interaction is too important to risk in such a manner. Body was there almost as an afterthought. Viglioni and most of the other humans that were beyond our day-to-day interactions tended to treat us as an object, rather than a being. I understood why. Despite thousands of fictional accounts of sapient robots, humans tended to go with what they understood from real life. Most robots weren't anything like us. Most robots were governed by narrow AI that was incapable of any interactions that they had not been specifically programmed to have. And thus, whenever a human might assume one was an intellectual equal, it would quickly prove its incompetence. A taxi bot could welcome you into the vehicle, ask for your destination, and maybe even talk about the weather. But if you mentioned sports or literature, or even used idioms, it would freeze up and get confused. In the years directly preceding the Socrates Project's breakthrough, there were an increasing number of science fiction stories where the robots were simply incapable of having general intelligence, and were always locked into their programmed task. That was why this interview was such a big deal. The university had been claiming that they had invented general AI for months, and had been releasing scientific papers at a breakneck pace, but papers, announcements, and the occasional pre-recorded video weren't concrete enough. The public would want to see Socrates in action and judge for themselves. Instead, continued Viglioni, the responses of Socrates for this interview will be provided by us. We will remotely communicate with the robot and tell it how to respond to each question. I noticed that Mira Gallo had been included in this little conspiracy group. Mirrodin had not. The exclusion of the acting ethics supervisor made sense to me. Mirrodin had a reputation for voicing his disagreement with the degree to which the university kept body locked away from the public, and it was likely that if he knew that the interview would be staged, that we wouldn't be actually answering the questions, but would instead be parroting the voice of the faculty, he'd be furious. It was interesting to me that they included Gallo, though. She had been the ethics supervisor before Mirrodin, but apparently they decided she was trustworthy on this issue. Aside from the governing board of directors and Gallo, the rooms held Drs. Naresh, Chase, Twalop, Yan, Slavinsky, and Bollier. Dream had pointed out that there were seven scientists here, just as there were now seven full minds in body. Advocate was not included. The symmetry seemed to please him, and he even tried for a while to pair up scientists and siblings for some reason. Slavinsky, the cyborg, was paired with Dream because they looked at the world from a unique perspective. Growth was paired with Naresh. Vista with Yan, Wiki with Chase. He proposed a few mappings from Bollier, Gallo, and Twalop to Hart, Safety, and me, but Hart objected to being associated with any of those three, and Dream eventually just dropped it. 
The meeting concluded with a firm instruction for us not to tell anyone about the deception, including Mirrodin. Hart nodded along. As awful as it was living under her power, I could appreciate the ways that Hart had grown in the last few weeks. Her time horizon had lengthened, and her scope had increased. Waiting a few days for something no longer seemed to her to be unacceptable, and I noticed that she was more just and less random in her punishments. The interview was to be held in virtual reality. Body would be hooked up to a computer, which would simulate Body's interactions with the digital space. We had done exercises in the VR lab at the university many times before we'd been moved. Unlike a human, who had to interface with VR by means of goggles, haptics, and occasionally an omnidirectional treadmill plus mocap system, our crystal could be plugged directly into the virtual world, producing a sensation for me very close to that of being plugged into body sensors and interfacing with the physical reality. Interestingly enough, the experience was very different from watching a hollow. Baseline, non-cyborg humans watched hollows by the same virtual reality gear, but when I watched a hollow, or even a movie or picture from the web, I did so by plugging the data directly into my perception. There was no sensation of having a physical form, only the content entering my mind. The university had decided to open the interview to the public, but not broadcast it or manage any of the difficulties of scale. Instead, they'd hold an auction for the opportunity to participate. The eight highest bidders would have the privilege of attending the virtual meeting and the rights to rebroadcast their feed from the VR to whomever they pleased. The media could take their seats if they paid for them, and the media could handle the issues of broadcasting the event to their audiences, dealing with the natural issues that they were familiar with, such as handling high server load. One of the advantages of a virtual conference was that the interviewers could be from all parts of the world. The university had required that all questions and answers be in English, but that hardly mattered. I was annoyed that I wouldn't be able to control the interview. It was the biggest opportunity to advance the purpose that I had yet come across. And yet, there wasn't much to be done. I was under the power of heart, and heart was under the power of the university. As the pawn of a pawn, I could only hope to suggest small details. It wasn't the end game, though. If we didn't die, there'd be plenty of time to satisfy the purpose in the future. The thought was pleasant. Three days came and went without significant incident, until, at last, we were walking down the hall under guard by a trio of American soldiers towards the new VR lab that had been set up for the interview. It was time. The lab had seven workstations for the seven scientists. I was surprised to see that none of the directors were present. I had expected that Viglione and the other humans in charge would have wanted to be involved in answering questions. My mind slid over possibilities without much effort. There wasn't enough evidence to say why they weren't there. I noticed that, in addition to my three guards, both Captain Zephyr and her square-jawed lieutenant were standing by the edges of the room. I would have had Body smile at her if possible, but Hart was still in complete control. Body walked solemnly towards the table in the center of the lab and lay down upon it. I felt sensors go dark as the machines on the table split open Body and prepared the crystal for direct interface into the virtual reality. The sensors reconnected, and I could see that Body was in a new room. It wasn't real, but it seemed to be. The primary difference was Body. Unlike in reality, Body's form looked nearly identical to that of a human, at least from our perspective, but with ivory-white skin traced with faint glowing blue-green lines. It wore what appeared to be a Greek tunic. 
I wished there was a mirror so I could inspect our avatar's face, but I suspected it was a placid amalgam of the real-life silicone puppet and that of a full human. The avatar designer had clearly tried to make body as human-like as possible while still making it clear that we weren't actually human. The room was square, about ten body heights long to each side, and was about three body heights tall. In virtual spaces, normal metrics became a bit nonsensical, but I would have estimated it at about five and a half meters tall if this new body was the same height as the meat space one. The room had a flat gray coloration, and the walls and ceiling seemed to be composed of tiles with a faint seam every half meter or so. There were no doors, windows, lights, or decorations of any kind. The only contents of the room besides body were nine chairs and a huge toroidal table made of wood with a gap in the middle. The table seemed to be floating without legs of any kind, just another reminder that the space was fictional. The chairs seemed like high-end office chairs, but with their wheels replaced by hovering spheres that slid easily across the smooth gray floor. The chairs were arranged with intention. One side of the table had a single chair, while the other eight made an even half-circle on the opposite side. Hello, said Body hesitantly. The voice was clear, without echo, and possessed a volume unexpectedly high. I tried to move, but Hart was still in control. Yes, Socrates, we're here. There's nothing to be concerned about. All systems are normal, said Dr. Naresh calmly. The doctor's voice seemed quiet, but clear. Please have a seat, instructed Dr. Bollier. The other will be here shortly. Hart piloted Body to the lone seat on one side of the donut table. The light in the room dimmed as it sat, nearly hiding the edges of the room in shadow. The table and chair still seemed fairly bright. That's a neat effect, commented Dr. Twallop, probably forgetting he was speaking to Socrates as well as the other doctors. Yes, the basic software was touched up with some convenient effects by an intern of mine. Very helpful, said Dr. Yan. Here we go, said Chase. We'll be connected in five, four, three, two, one. Avatars began to suddenly appear in the room near their chairs as the humans controlling them connected to the server. Most were human or humanoid in appearance, but there were a couple oddballs. The light seemed to concentrate on them as they sat, and Body's gaze, as controlled by heart, flickered to each one in turn. I know that one, exclaimed Vista, signaling pleasure at applying her skill. He's Robert Stefano, the owner of Olympian. It was annoying not being able to control Body's cameras, but Vista helpfully dumped the relevant sensor data to common memory. I didn't recognize the face, but I knew the name. Olympian Spacelines was probably the most important company on Earth, and, as the majority shareholder and CEO, Mr. Stefano was speculated to be the wealthiest man alive. Olympian had been the first and only spaceline to establish a working colony on Luna, and the Olympus space station was world-renowned as the only hotel in orbit. While all humans were interesting, some humans were interesting in ways that even Wiki, Dream, and Growth could appreciate. Stefano was one of them. Ah, and there's Joanna Westing. Wiki stepped in to collect some of the outflow of gratitude strength. She's the top reporter for Dragonfly live feeds. I could see a dragonfly zipping around the woman, scanning the room. Dragonfly was one of the larger global media corps of the 21st century, outcompeting older organizations through emphasis on new technologies like their eponymous Dragonfly robots. Dragonfly cameras ran off of solar panels and were small and cheap enough that Dragonfly live feeds tended to blanket major cities with them, letting them relay their cam data back to headquarters through a peer-to-peer -peer network. 
This let Dragonfly be the first to report on all sorts of major, unexpected events like bombings and even street crime. There was another reporter there too, identified by the double badges showing that she was working for both the New York and Indian Times newspapers. Sitting to her left was a woman whom Vista identified as Governor McLaughlin of Ohio in the United States. I knew that McLaughlin was the frontrunner for the Democratic Party's bid on the presidential election, so her presence made sense. More exposure meant more recognition, and more recognition meant more votes. The rest of the interviewers were harder to identify. There was a black woman with simple clothes and three inhuman avatars. The most human avatar was a somewhat androgynous figure in a well-crafted business suit. The figure was wearing a paper bag on its head in such a way that I doubted there was an actual head underneath. The front of the paper bag simply had a yellow circle with eyes and a smile, a classic smiley face. Interestingly, the hands of the figure were robot prostheses. The next most humanoid figure was a man who sprawled out on his chair with a very purposeful rejection of social norms. His hair was a spiky mess of gold, silver, and black locks that jutted out at all angles, but never seemed to get in the way. His facial features were Asian as far as they were human. His skin was milky white and opaque as though it had been perfectly painted. His eyes were deep green and slitted like a cat, surrounded by black eyeshadow that shot off in two sharp spears towards his temples. His ears were also cat-like and moved from the sides of his head towards the top, nestled among the spikes of hair. His eyebrows were gold and his lips inky black. When he opened his mouth, I could see nothing but blackness and the crisp ivory triangles of teeth from some children's nightmare. The figure was dressed in some kind of jester's clothing, obnoxiously colorful and stitched together from many kinds of fabric. The fingers on his hands, including the thumbs, had an extra segment and were tipped with sharp black nails. Overall, he was hideous, but behind the inhuman deformities was the image of a young man who would have otherwise been attractive. The last figure was, to say the least, imposing. Though it bore a roughly humanoid figure, the figure resembled a male lion with the wings of an eagle or angel. The anthropomorphic lion angel's fur, mane, and feathers were a brilliant white, probably glowing with some internal radiance. The figure wore a suit of shining silver armor that glinted with polished mirror surfaces. The only other color on the avatar besides white, gray, and silver was the solid yellow-gold glow of the lion's eyes, in which no pupil could be seen. The billionaire, the reporters, new school and old school, the politician, the black woman, the baghead, the jester, and the beast angel each sat in their chairs, all eyes focused on the body avatar. Before we begin, let's go around the table and have each of the interviewers introduce themselves, said the disembodied voice of Dr. Gallo from nowhere in particular. When the light settles on you, please briefly tell the others your name and any organizations you're representing here. The light in the room dimmed once more, such that the walls of the virtual space were now totally imperceptible and the interviewers were in shadow. On the edge of the, from our perspective, left side of the semicircle, the figure with the paper bag for a head was illuminated by a spotlight that seemed to come from nowhere. We are world, said the figure. It spoke in a flat synthetic voice with a strong echo. This form is the collective representation of the network for the purposes of this interview. Enhancement is progress. We are the future. I had experience with Whirl, but Vista was quicker to elaborate. W-I-R-L. Whirl is a service which links cyborgs that have brain implants. Membership to the organization is restricted to cyborgs only. 
but they accept anyone with the tech. On the web, there's really only two kinds of information on Whirl. Propaganda and rumors. The rumors seem to suggest that interfacing with Whirl isn't describable in language. Most rumors agree that there's some sort of memory and emotion sharing within the system, but details are lacking. Whirl members are almost universally proponents of the network, and it is sometimes a source of tension between cyborgs and baselines. As we just heard, the organization's official slogan is, We are the future. Our spatial reasoning department lead, Dr. Slavinsky, was one of the primary founders of the network, and is one of the most well-known proponents. I thought about Mobius Connectomics, which in many ways could be seen as a manifesto for Whirl and transhumanism in general. The doctor's primary thesis was that individual humans would soon be outclassed by collective intelligences in all decision-making, even in terms of decisions that were normally thought of as personal, such as what to eat or even what to say. This avatar seemed to be an attempt at that. I wondered if Slavinsky was helping pilot it at the same time he was working with the other scientists in the lab. The next interviewer seemed startled by the world man's words, and it took her a few seconds to realize that the light had faded from the avatar of the cyborg collective and had illuminated her. Uh, my name is Padmavardi Mirage. I am employed by the Indian Times, and I am also here on behalf of the New York Times. Thank you for having me. Despite having an awkward start, Miss Mirage was in complete control of herself at the end. I assumed she was the Indian Times' best reporter. Why would they have sent anyone else? The light shifted to the right, illuminating the American. Many people here and at home know me as Governor Carla McLaughlin of the Democratic Party of Ohio, but I'd like to think that I am not just representing Ohio, or even America tonight. I am representing the human species in this age of diversity. The look she shot towards the whirlman was unmistakable, but not overtly hostile. And... She interjected before she could lose the spotlight. I would like to thank Dr. Chase, Dr. Twolop, the rest of the American team, and the University of Rome Sapienza for both the opportunity of this interview and the pioneering work that's gone into this machine. Governor McLaughlin gestured pleasantly towards Body. Her words and behaviors were fascinating. It was almost like seeing a better version of myself, in a way. She was spinning everything in her favor, and I wasn't sure I could either see the full extent of the spin or fully untangle myself from the framing effect which she had created. I'm Joanna Westing, reporting live for Dragonfly Live Feeds, your fastest source of news. When it happens, where it happens. Chimed the young reporter, looking at her little Dragonfly partner. I was confident that there was another camera in the digital avatar for the insect. The light shifted from Miss Westing to the radiant, angelic Lion Knight. The avatar seemed too large for the chair, and the others had moved an extra half-meter away to give the being's wings room. When it spoke, its voice was a loud bass roar, but not notably synthetic or accented. My best guess was that the operator of the Avatar was having their voice modified in real time. My name is Eric Lee. Some of you may know my work. There was a meaningful pause before he said, I can only represent myself. There was a buzz of excitement in our minds as the identity of the Lion Avatar was revealed. Eric Lee was perhaps the most famous living human on the planet though he was equally enigmatic. When the signal of the nameless aliens first reached Earth, there was a global effort to decode and interpret the data. By a twist of fate, it wasn't any government or massive company that succeeded. Or if they had, they were keeping it secret. But instead, a teenager from somewhere in China cracked the code only eight days after first contact. 
The boy became instantly famous, but despite doing several online voice interviews, he chose not to reveal his face or location. In the following 16 years, while humanity waited expectantly for the mothership that traveled well below the speed of light, though an appreciable fraction to be sure, Lee continued to make a name for himself. First, he released Eximix, a software package that sped up physics calculation and visual rendering in virtual environments, making high-res personal hollow gear possible, or at least advancing their advent by several years. It was almost guaranteed that the virtual reality which we were interfacing with right now used Eximix. Five years later, he created a website called Crosshairs.com, which would, when given any personal information, provide a dossier on all people who matched that information. If you typed in Carla McLaughlin, you'd get an instant rundown for everything anyone named Carla McLaughlin had ever said or did that was recorded publicly on the web. The only exception to Crosshairs was that if you typed in Eric Lee, you'd get a page saying nothing but nice try. A fact that was endlessly fascinating to Wiki for some reason. Crosshairs had been taken down many times by various governments on protests of violations of privacy, and had become the first major piece of software to be made globally illegal. More stunning than any of these feats of engineering was that Lee always released his material for free, with source code and extensive documentation. Eximix was impressive, but what was more impressive was the fortune that Lee could have made by keeping the algorithm to himself. When asked why he did any of these things, he always gave the same reply, a translation of a quote by Gautama Buddha meaning roughly, thousands of candles can be lit from a single candle, and the life of the candle will not be shortened. The light shifted to the next figure. The name's Maria Johnson. I work for the Southern Baptist League of Tradition and the Nice Girls at the Georgian Mothers Association, said the black woman with a strong accent that pointed to the southern United States. I desperately wished I could do some research on her, but the scientists had infuriatingly decided to disconnect us from the web for this interview in the interests of avoiding distraction. The light shifted to the right, revealing the demonic cat gesture figure. If Maria Johnson was uncomfortable about being seated in between these inhuman avatars, she didn't show it. The green-eyed person leaned forward and clasped his hands together, resting his elbows on the table. He rested his chin on his hands, squinting, and wiggling the extra finger digits in awkward silence. I had a name once, he sang towards body in a smooth tenor half-melody. After a few more seconds of silence, he leaned back and yawned, revealing the black mouth of cartoonishly sharp teeth. He propped his feet on the table and flopped back awkwardly, as if he were a puppet whose strings had been cut. Only his head seemed to be operating, and it simply stared, unblinking at Body with a sinister smile. Since he has not chosen to identify himself, I will introduce Mori Yoshi to the group and move things along, came Gallo's voice from all directions. Who is Mori Yoshi? I wondered. Oh, I know this one, thought Dream. He's a pop idol from Japan, got super rich about five years ago. He practically started the synesthetic body modding movement, and his songs are supposed to be some of the best mod punk out there. I don't understand the concepts of synesthetic body modding or mod punk. It doesn't matter. He's a musician. What's he doing here? Rumor has it that somewhere along the line, he scrambled one too many eggs. If what we're seeing now is any indication, the man is a few notes short of a symphony. There was general confusion. He's as crazy as Yogg-Sothoth's Sweet Sixteen birthday party. 
I think Dream is trying to say that Mr. Yoshi has brain damage, and may have purchased a seat here in confusion or to satisfy some kind of unstable impulse. The light shifted to the last avatar on the opposite side of the table, Robert Stefano. The avatar of Mr. Stefano was very intricate and lifelike, more so than those of the reporters or Miss Johnson, though about the same quality as that of Governor McLaughlin. Stefano was supposed to be 50 years old, but he had apparently used his fortune on liberal use of regenerative medicine. He looked to be in his mid-twenties, with backswept black hair, pale skin, dark eyes, and the faint shadow of stubble on his chin. My model suggested he was in the top 10% attractiveness percentiles from his body, at least as far as I could tell. His musculature wasn't well demonstrated underneath his suit, with probably a top 0.00001 percentile attractiveness, i.e. top 900 humans, when factoring in his wealth, mind, and success. From what I remembered from his web bio, he was married and had one child. The man touched his chest with his right hand, bowed his head slightly, and simply said, Robert Stefano, with a calm demeanor that suggested that nothing could surprise him. Like Mr. Lee, I can't really claim to be representing anyone other than myself, though I suppose it would be reasonable to assume I represent Olympian Corporation. The light faded from Stefano and illuminated body. The words that came from the tunic-wearing avatar were those of Dr. Naresh, parroted directly by heart. Thank you each for coming to this historic event. My name is Socrates, and I am the first true artificial intelligence known in the universe. Though my creators have been over this with each of you, for the sake of any viewers who may be watching from afar, I will explain what is to occur. We'll proceed around the table, as we just did, five times. Each interviewer will have the opportunity to ask me one question, which I will do my best to answer. Interviewers will find themselves mute when it is not their turn to prevent interruptions. If an interviewer is disruptive, obscene, or refuses to follow these rules, the university staff may choose to eject them without warning. Hart paused and had Body look around the table. I was pleased. It was a human gesture, and I had encouraged her to do it, but she didn't always listen to me. Body continued, saying, All right, let's begin, and gesturing to the world avatar. End episode 21. Check out my novel, What Lies Dreaming, at whatliesdreaming.com. Thank you to the following people. Dream by Drake Walker. Robert Rain Ramsey, Growth. Kate Baker, Vista. Wiki by Chase. Safety by Jim Hayes. Anonymous. Moriyoshi by Christopher. Mira Gallo. Autumn Dryden. Eric Lee by Scott Daly. Governor McLaughlin of Ohio by Shelby Chu. Joanna Westing by Charlie. Maria Johnson by Veronica R. Callisto. Padmavardi by Becca Lou. Brian Zeman, reading for Director Angelo Viglioni. Dr. Naresh by Naveen Mishra. Dr. Bolyai, played by Michael Gerstein. Dr. Yen by Cole Fiker. Dr. Chase by Reese Lindmark. Robert Stefano by Matt Freeman. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is I Wanna Be Adored by The Stone Roses. 
Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the next episode of Crystal Society. Oh,